Welcome back to GivePod, Greater Vancouver's business podcast. I'm Bridget Anderson, President and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. We're back to continue our series on labour, sponsored by the British Columbia Institute of Technology, Education for a Complex World. Currently, there are 150,000 job vacancies in our province. The BC government predicts 1 million job openings in the next decade. Throughout this series, we've been discussing the labour challenges in BC and solutions to address the problem. I am delighted today to be joined by the Minister of Post-Secondary Education and Future Skills, Selena Robinson. She was first elected in 2013 and re-elected in 2017 and 2020. Most recently, she served as the Minister of Finance. Welcome, Minister. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. Okay, well, let's start off maybe at the beginning of your professional story. You were appointed Minister of Post-Secondary Education in December, and so how does your professional experience, you know, in prior roles in government and before being in government impact your perspective in this new-ish role? Well, well thank, thank you for that question. And I, I have to say, having been in cabinet for these last six years with a variety of different portfolios has really given me the opportunity to see different parts of our economy and in different ways. So, for example, I was the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing in my very first um um, cabinet um, selection. Uh, Don Horgan asked me to take on those files and so really saw how important it was to make sure we were building the right kind of housing in, in different parts of the province, not just in the lower mainland, but anticipating that there would be housing shortages elsewhere, but also hearing that there were skill shortages. Um, in other parts of the province, couldn't find uh, the development community wasn't active in smaller towns and smaller communities, not being able to find the labor uh, that people needed because there were large projects happening, Site C, LNG, and so mm -hmm. not being able to find the skilled folks. Uh, at the time, I was focusing on housing, of course. Um, and then certainly, uh, as I, uh, when I became Minister of Finance, um, and talking with my various colleagues who all wanted a piece of the limited pie of, of, of what government had um, available to uh, invest, uh, was certainly hearing uh, when I would ask my colleagues questions around, okay, so you need X number of FTEs to deliver on this. Where are you going to find those people from? Because we were hearing from the private sector, from the public sector, as well as the not-for-profit sector, um, they can't hire people. And so my questions kept being, where are you going to hire these people? Where are you going to hire these people? Are we training enough people? So these were things that we've been hearing, uh, certainly, I would say more so over the last four years, certainly since COVID um, in a much more accelerated way. It is definitely the the biggest challenge that our members talk to us about that attracting and retaining talent is one of the most vexing problems for them. And interesting that you mention your role in housing because it is correlated to housing, being able to attract and retain talent is the cost of housing. But in this new role, new-ish, it's December, so I shouldn't say new, new-ish role, you know, a big piece of the puzzle is the post-secondary uh, yes. sector and how it is actually shaping talent for the future. So, you know, what kind of approach are, are you taking when it comes to post-secondary about how we're building the workforce that we need, not just for today, but more importantly, maybe for tomorrow? Exactly. And it takes time to build out your talent pool. So you can't you can't have it available on a dime. So we need to anticipate. We're relying very heavily on the labor market outlook. We recognize that that is the best uh, piece of advice we have, as well as engaging with different sectors about what they're seeing. The very early signs, 
right? What are the early signs that we're seeing? And so uh, when, when Premier Eby asked me to take on this file, he did say, because I had been the Minister of Finance, that I did have a relationship with the private sector. And that that was really important to us as government is to have um, a good relationship so that we could feed in to what it is we're going to need, not just next year, but three years five years out so that we can plan and make sure that we have the programs available and that we're training people with the right skills. Um, and so that's what we're doing with Future Ready. Um, that's the plan that we've been putting together. I'll have more to say specifically about it in the next mm, five, six, seven weeks as we're, we're putting the finishing touches on the plan, but we've already started acting on it. We haven't waited until the plan was done. So for example, we know we need everyone working. We have very low employment rate. Uh, um, if effectively, people who can work uh, and uh, want to work are working. So how do we um, uh, elevate and uh, give our existing talent pool more skills to do more and to do what is mm -hmm. needed um, and relate that to the labor market outlook so that people can pivot to where the jobs are right now and where they're going to be. Um, so last week we announced that we are going to support um, anyone who's been uh, a child in care, a youth in care, that they they can access post-secondary education. It really speaks to maximizing workforce participation. And a, as you know, we put out yeah. our own report on labor and, and did speak to you and, and your staff quite a bit as we were going through our own consultation process. And this report was released at the beginning of February. 65 recommendations, which might seem overwhelming, but really into three buckets and maximizing getting people into the workforce is really important. And having that holistic view as, you know, underrepresented groups, like you mentioned, youth and care, women, uh, indigenous communities. I mean, that has to be part of the puzzle as well, is making sure that everybody who wants to work can work. Exactly. And that's why that and that points to our child care plan. So we recognize early on that we're going to need everyone working. And if we don't have a, a robust child care plan, an affordable, accessible one, um, then we're not going to have enough parents in the workforce in the way that we need them to be in the workforce. And so our child care plan is, an is part of our economic plan. It's part of making sure that the labor force has the confidence that their children are cared for so that they can continue to be productive um, in the economy. Um, so that's, you know, again, part of the holistic thinking that, that we're bringing. It's also why we're taking a look at how do we do more micro-credentials? We started doing that some time ago, recognizing that there are people currently in the workforce who perhaps can't leave the workforce for, you know, a, a eight months or a year or two years in order to get, um, you know, more credentials that, that or more skills that gives, allows them to pivot to a new um, job opportunity or to adapt to a changing uh, and evolving market that they're, that they're working in. So creating micro credentials that are, um, you know, in smaller, in smaller bites, that affords uh, employers to release employees to, to go and do, the, do this work, allows um, learners to learn in smaller chunks, but that build over time. So if you do five or six or eight of these micro-credentials over a period of time, then you get a certificate of some kind, or you get a diploma of some kind that demonstrates to employers that you're skilled up, but you don't have to actually leave the, the workplace, the market, the labor force in order to do that. It's a fantastic initiative, sort of stackable, uh, if you wish. We partnered with BCIT, um, and we were uh, one of the first of its kind to, uh, we came up with a, a micro-credential on ESG fundamentals, seeing it was a real gap in the market. So delighted to be able to offer that 
to our members and to, to non-members, but it has been really picked up quite successfully, I think, because as you say, it allows people some flexibility to um, add additional skills to their tool belt in a way that is accessible and not too strenuous on their, their jobs uh, at all. Um, I do want to ask a little bit about the youth in care, though, because um, this is it is quite, a, I think, an achievement for this government to be able to do that. And I think is going to be looked at by many jurisdictions around the world as something that is is it's not a handout, it's a hand up. And, and so what was the sort of thinking involved in that uh, initiative? So, um, you know, our philosophy as a government, first of all, has always been that these are children in our care, in government care, and as the parents, air quotes, of these children, then we have a responsibility to make sure that they can launch into adulthood successfully. Um, and those of us who have children of our own, we all know very well that when a child turns 19, they aren't suddenly able to you know, manifest the adulting that is required, that for some it takes longer. I mean, some can do it successfully at 17. I mean, there, there's no doubt, but others need more time. And we also know that even going to school um, or do a training program also, you know, you're not ready at 19 to do that. You need to explore a little bit. Um, and others sometimes get caught. They they, they go to, into work, they, they um, um, have an income, they're employed, then they think five years down the road, gee, I'd really wish I could go to school, but they can't because now they're locked into mm -hmm. expenses, give them the, the flexibility that they needed. So we started this. In fact, I, I want to give VIU credit, Vancouver Island University credit. They did this on their own back, um, I think, in 2016, 2017. They, they were doing this on their own. And uh, as government, we saw that in said, you know what, government should take this on. It should just be the university taking this on. We're going to make this available up to um, anyone who is aged out of care um, up to the age of 26, um, because that for us was with the range that we felt was appropriate uh, to help people move into a fully independence. Um, and so all the public uh, post-secondary schools had this plan and we saw the success right, with several thousand, mm -hmm. I think things was about just about 1900, had um, uh, taken government up on the opportunity and were, uh, we were seeing successes in this. But we were also hearing that there were those who wished they'd had that opportunity when they were younger. Um, and as a result, we're now 40 years old, they too had been in care, uh, but they too, um, you know, missed out on the opportunity. And we've just felt it was the right thing to do to make sure that anyone who had been in care had the opportunity. And we know that there's about 50,000 British Columbians who had at some point been in care uh, would meet the criteria. Um, and so we want to make it available to them uh, and um, and provide them with the supports they need so that they could be the best uh, that they can be and have the skills that they um, perhaps, you know, never had the chance to uh, to acquire and they can more fully participate in the economy. It's your career, your vision and your goal. You should be able to navigate it your way. BCIT Flexible Learning is designed to help you get to the next level. Whether you want to learn a new skill or earn a degree, discover a variety of options during the day, in the evening, or a bit of both. You're learning your way. Learn more about your options at bcit.ca slash flex. BCIT, flexible learning for a complex world. Just a great initiative. You know, it, there is one area, I think, where um, the system does need to change. Um, we've all heard the stories of 
the multitude of people who um, come to Canada as newcomers and they have credentials from their own country that they've come from and then they can't, they're not translatable to, to British Columbia. And so they're stuck in this limbo of trying to get these foreign credentials recognized and then they have to find lower paying jobs to kind of keep them and their families afloat. You know, what can government do to to address this issue with foreign credentials? And is there a role for industry to play as well? I know it's one of our recommendations in our report to speed up that process. Well, we're very much uh, supportive of speeding up that process. It's why uh, the Minister of State for Workforce Development, Andrew Mercier, is tasked with looking at foreign credential uh, recognition, what we need to do, how do we need to support people to get their, their credentials recognized, and what's the system and making it an efficient system, one that, that they can easily identify that then you know has a workflow that can help people once they're here, we could gather their credentials credentials and move them through so that they meet our standards, because I think everyone recognizes that there, there should be a standard, but that we have a way to measure that in an efficient way so that people can get to work early on. The question about should they have Canadian experience? Is that really necessary? So what is the is the is the criteria for that? So that's work that we're undertaking and looking at uh, the regulatory framework that would help move, make that uh, a more, much more efficient system. So could um, that look like without you know trying to get to solution for government here? But it could could it look like that somebody who comes they could kind of dip in and out of the workforce and learning um, to be able to use some of their record uh, their credentials and do some of the the, the job that they would be qualified for or something or get some training on the job? I mean, is there some sort of thinking around that? Absolutely. In fact, the the vets that we announced the, that we doubled the seats for vet for veterinarians today, the um the uh, foreign training veterinarians, we, there's a model now that it where they can come and under the supervision of a Canadian certified veterinarian, they could provide some of the work while they do their exams. Yeah, it's so sort that, of an apprenticeship model in some ways, isn't it? A little bit, a little bit. And that's yeah. actually one of the things that I, I hope that you will share with your, with your members is how important an apprenticeship model is, a co-op model, the practicum model, um, and that we need all sectors um, to, to uh, I'll say, step up and open up the opportunities for, for learners. Um, that that sometimes can bog down people getting certified or getting uh, or graduating is that they need to do a practicum placement uh, of some kind um, and finding that placement um, is really is critical to them finishing and so they need to be supervised and that means employers um, providing the opportunity to supervise the work and we, we see that in our skilled trades we see that in you know with LPNs long um, um, and and others in the nursing profession in the medical profession um, you know I, I was a, a family therapist and so my my master's degrees in counseling Psych, so we had to have practicum placements in order to be supervised to do our work as we were going to school. Um, but they were the hardest part of the degree was finding your practicum placement. It's such a good point, Minister. You know, as part of the process of us uh, creating uh, and producing our labor report, we held um, a number of um, focus groups and and sort of roundtable discussions. And one group that we spent some time with was a group that was either just finishing university or had just graduated. You know, those younger people to really get their thoughts. And that is exactly what they said. They needed more skills that they could get on the job. They also, though, said they needed more practical skills that they could get while at university or college. 
Is this something, a conversation that's happening with post-secondary? And, and it was a great example. Um, one of the students was in a science program, but said, well, I'm going to go and take these skills that I'm learning theoretically at school, but I'm going to be working in a business environment. I would love to learn how to read a budget and I would love to learn some of those business skills, but I couldn't take that unless I stepped outside of my stream and took it as an, an elective. And so I think it's just a, such a great point is that, you know, Kids can be learning about sociology or about philosophy, but they want some real practical skills too. Yes. And, and, that, and that speaks to sort of the way in which we are constructing programs now. So um, the other day I was just in the Okanagan and we announced the Center for Food, Wine and Tourism. Which that would is, be a um, good uh, program. <laughs> Outside of Okanagan College, well, it brings together with their business school, because they have a business school, it brings together all of these things, right? So you're, you're talking about the Okanagan where they have agriculture right there, uh, where they have a fabulous culinary arts program and beverage arts program, uh, where they have wineries and cideries, um, and where they have tourism and a business school. And so how do you put all these things together? So if you wanna be opening up a restaurant, you need to not just have the culinary expertise, but how do you manage your HR piece? How do you de develop a budget? How do you develop a business plan? It's done in collaboration with the business school. So we're seeing more and more of this in the post-secondary sector where there's just more collaboration across um, different uh, uh, schools, different philosophies, and across the different um, uh, kinds of institutions. So that's been my philosophy as a, as the minister for post-secondary education and future skills is we need better collaboration mm -hmm. between our different post-secondaries because, you know, the colleges can do everything from soup to nuts. They're, they're pretty spectacular. They can design, um, but, uh, and our universities have, you know, sort of the research component and helping them come together so that they could create these programs that um, share the latest on the research side and then teach it to the students who might be at the college side and, and have these sorts of relationships is really part of what I've been trying to facilitate so that we get the best opportunities for people to learn. And that gives us the strongest talent that we need. Um, and that's and that's what we're what um, Future Ready is really all about is how do we maximize what we already have so that we could uh, accelerate and develop a talent pool that is the best on the planet. Without giving away anything that you're going to announce in the plan in the coming weeks, um, the other thing that we heard from uh, from the youngest of workers to the most senior of workers and to employers right across all of the consultation we did in our our report was the need for digital skills. And that BC had an opportunity to really lead uh, the country in this area. So it, does Future Ready Plan talk about those kinds of skills that are needed for, for now in the future? For sure. And thousands of more seats. We call them tech seats. And um, and that means digital skills. When we say tech seats, it's not necessarily the folks who are going to be um, developing games in the tech sector. It's that we recognize that there's technology in building. Right. There's technology, you know, the the every company is a tech company, right? <laughs> exactly. Right. And so whether it's front end or back end, we know that people need to be trained in the latest technology. And so that's why we've been announcing thousands of seats. We've already announced um, out of this budget, thousands more tech seats. So it's it, we're continuing to grow and maximize the opportunities. Um, and we have great institutions who understand you know, what needs to be delivered. And I, I will give a shout out to BCIT and, and to some of the work that they've been doing and recognizing the tech talent and working together with industry. And I, and I want to 
give a shout out to the institutions that really have made a, a tremendous effort to be responsive to industry. And, and BCIT is one of the, the, the fabulous ones where I've had the opportunity to, to have a tour and see how they're not just connecting with industry and, and, and technology, uh, industry in particular, but they are inviting them in, inviting industry in to work directly with the students to solve real life mm -hmm. problems. Like that to me is really where we're going to elevate our talent pool and develop the the future skills um, that that we're we're going to be needing. I mean, I think about what's happening around climate change, and so making sure that we are working, you know, sort of what in my world we call cross ministry, but in the world of post secondary, you're you're working, you know, um, you know, across different um, different parts of the university, different parts of the college, coming together to solve real life problems. Because that's really where we can take that learning, apply it right away and make sure that we can continue growing and developing our workforce that way. So knowing that the Future Ready Plan is coming out later this spring, if you were to sit back in a couple of years from now or even five years from now, how would you uh, measure success on this? That's a great question because I've been talking with my staff about that, that we need to be able to. And one of the very, very first things, in fact, we're putting... All the various pieces it's a it's it's quite comprehensive there's many different pieces there's no one thing that government or industry or um or any uh, post-secondary institution or training college is going to do that's going to fix this this is mm -hmm. a lot of pieces that need to be brought together and i was really clear with my staff i said so what i want people to say um is I'm able to find trained people. Uh, our members, that would be music to their ears. Right? Future Ready is not uh, a static plan. It's a plan that will be altered as the landscape alters. We have seen how COVID changed things for us in so many ways and how we all need to adapt. Um, and this plan will need to adapt. So it will be a living document where we get the labor market outlook every year. And it's going to be able to tell us where we need to anticipate and go um, and, and address uh, the shortages, the skilled trades. Because I think if we can't build things, if we can't build the housing, we won't be able to find people to work in our tech sector. So this is one of those places where I think it's really important that we talk about how important building things is, working with your hands, how important that is. I was, uh, as I was touring, um, whether it was Camosun College um, um, and uh, just Okanagan College, I got to see women in trades. They have classes now for women in trades. That's whole fantastic. Classes, mm -hmm. women. Because, and they said, I like to learn with other women because I don't feel so intimidated. And that's a big thing in the trades for women, for sure. For sure. But you know what else is a barrier for, for, for women in the trades is the bathrooms on site, on work site, are disgusting. Or there isn't a, a specific washroom for the women. It's just all one. There's a, Those kinds of obstacles can really hold individuals back from fully participating. And so employers have a role to play here. I guess that's what I'm trying to say is that employers have a role to play. That if you're having a hard time retaining talent, like really try to find out what the barriers are, because I think it's really important to understand what would keep these women on the in the workplace. The other thing that's really important is, you know, talking to our kids about um, a skilled trades and what it means to become a carpenter and electrician and that that has value and that has respect um, and that has longevity. Um, and that means they can go anywhere and work. 
um, especially if they're red seal for sure. Um, and so we need to make working with your hands sexy again and attractive again. Uh, I fully we, agree. There's not one path forward for any one individual. There's lots and lots of opportunities. And, you know, what is good for one person might not be a fit for another. And it really all comes back to the principle of maximizing workforce participation and removing barriers, doesn't it? It, it, it does. And giving every occupation the respect it deserves, mm -hmm. you know, and um, and, and so we have a lot of work to do, I would say, in the K-12 sector as well. We're talking there around how do we support young people to find um, skilled trades attractive and how do we help them identify early on. There are some really interesting programs now where people, um, and I met again some young people just recently um, in Victoria who are just finishing up their grade 12, but they're finishing up at the college because they are going to be uh, sheet metal workers. And so in the grade 12 year, mm -hmm. they're taking courses and they're going to work right away. And that can be applied to other occupations as well. I mean, that yeah. I, I think is one of the things that um, employers are telling us is that flexibility and innovation. Uh, and it sounds like the Future Ready Plan is heading in that direction. So really looking forward to seeing that. Um, and you say later this spring? Later this spring. We'll have more to say about it. You'll see the full thing. And and again, I, I you know, I, I appreciate uh, Greater Vancouver Board of Trade doing your report because it helps it helps inform us as government about, you know, we we met with like about 850 folks as part of our um, consortium of, of putting together this plan. But you talked with other folks. Um, and so seeing that, you know, that there's uh, you'll see repetitive stuff um, in this plan that that you've identified because we're hearing the same things. And that's just really for me comforting to know that we are seeing the same things. We're on the right path. Um, but we need to keep at it and we need to keep listening and we need to keep feeding back into what it is that we're doing so that we can be as responsive and as flexible and as adaptive and resilient as possible. Yeah. And as you say, Minister, it's not just the responsibility of government or post-secondary or industry. It really is uh, all of us working together and to ensure that we have the workforce we need now and that we're building the one that we're going to need in 20 and 50 years from now. That's exactly it. It's really about us all coming together. Yeah. Minister, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Our Labour Series is sponsored by the British Columbia Institute of Technology. Education for a complex world.